Hey everyone, you're listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Horgan. This show brings you advocates from across the country to speak about their experiences and advocacy work that happens beyond the crag. This includes climbing advocates that work on a local scale, policy professionals, athletes, and all others in between that have a deep love for the climbing environment. My aim is to connect more climbers to the work that these advocates do and inspire everyone that no matter how big or small, they have an opportunity to get involved and do their part. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. For nearly 30 years, Access Fund has been the organization that has kept our beloved climbing resources conserved and cared for. From stewardship to influencing climbing policy and educating current and new climbers on the best responsible behavior, Access Fund is on it. As they say, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting your local climbing organization. The show is also supported by Gnarly Nutrition. We want to thank Gnarly Nutrition for being a supporter of Access Fund and the Climbing Advocate Podcast. Gnarly Nutrition and its employees recognize that it is a privilege to visit and recreate in outdoor spaces. They believe that these spaces should be protected and safe for all to recreate in. Gnarly Nutrition. Want more. Do more. Be more. Hey everyone, welcome to another installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode 28. My guest for this month is Sarah Garlick. Sarah is the board president for Friends of the Ledges, the climbing advocacy group that covers the White Mountains of of New Hampshire, which includes places like Cathedral Ledge and Whitehorse Ledge. I was really excited for this one because the main topic we discussed in our conversation isn't one I've had before or have learned much about. Friends of the Ledges is in a pretty unique position here as an advocacy group that is tasked with, quote, managing year-round climbing. I use that word managing kind of loosely. You know, they're not, they're not the land manager, but they're, they're just tasked with this management objective of dealing with year-round climbing. At Cathedral Ledge, for example, as the snow and ice moves in, out come the crampons and the ice tools, right? And the ice and, quote, winter routes will often overlap with what's considered a summer route. So it begs the question as to how to respectfully climb this winter route if it might jeopardize the integrity of the summer rock route as to not permanently damage the resource with tools and crampons. They just hosted a community forum, uh, I believe like just a few days ago, uh, discussing this exact topic around what the proper etiquette and ethics are when it comes to climbing what might be a summer route in the winter. And then after that, after we kind of get into the meat of that, Rock and Ice came out with a really great article as an op-ed about a, an ascent of a, of a really just epic route that combines just about every style of climbing except like bouldering, I guess, uh, rock, ice, and dry tooling all like in one pitch. It's pretty, pretty awesome. I linked it up in the show notes if you want to take a reference to it. So we use that as an example towards the end of what might be the proper etiquette or might set a precedent for how to climb these winter uh, summer routes in the winter. I know dry tooling has been discussed at length online, but it was nice to talk to someone one-on-one here about this and get their thoughts and how they might be approaching it in their respective area. It's really interesting talking to Sarah about it. I'm, I'm actually I'm really interested to hear what came out of that meeting. I'll have to check in with her about it, see how that see how that went just a few days ago. Even though Friends at the Ledges is a pretty new organization, they've had some pretty big ticket items on their plate, including what I just discussed in managing year-round climbing but also some major conservation wins at Cathedral and Whitehorse Ledges a, few, a couple of years ago, and also at the Band M Ledge, which happened uh, in 2011, I believe, which is which was prior to when this organization actually formed, but now they're handling those management objectives that came out of that conservation win. And they also have some great rebolting efforts going on right now as well. And we get into those uh, conservation rebolting uh, stuff there at the end of the conversation. So all good things that go along with a climbing organization's typical responsibilities. Friends at the Ledges is just another excellent example of a climbing advocacy group that supports Access Fund's mission and takes care of their local climbing resources. So allow me to introduce you all to Friends at the Ledges board president, Sarah Garlick. Enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um... I definitely spent 
I had some summers doing geology field work in that part of the world. <laughs> oh, nice. Right yeah, on. many years ago. Nice. Have you, uh, did you ever go to the Black Canyon? Yeah, yeah, and had some good good climbing days in the Black, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, and some bad ones, but that's another <laughs> story for another time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, so where are you based out of now? Uh, I live in North Conway, New Hampshire. Okay, North Conway. I figured it was probably somewhere around one of those bigger spots, probably near near uh, Cathedral and all that. Yes, my house is about four and a half miles from Cathedral Edge. <laughs> that is so awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are you originally from there? No, I'm originally from North Carolina. Okay, so East yeah. Coast still. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How'd you make your way up to uh, up to New Hampshire, Northeast? Um, I came to New England as a college student, so I came up to um, Rhode Island to go to Brown University in the late 90s and um, hated New England and was sure that I would end <laughs> up in the Southeast, which is what, where I loved. And then, um, But then I started climbing in, um, I sort of split my time in college climbing in the Gunks and in New Hampshire and then really fell in love with New Hampshire and the community there and, um, and kind of that's how I ended up in New Hampshire. Yeah, it's, it sounds it sounds like an awesome community. I've had a couple other folks from that area on the show. Let's see, I don't know, this is probably well over a year ago now, but uh, Mike Morin from the Access Fund and uh, Seth, I'm forgetting his last name, with Craig Vermont, uh, two awesome guys that just crush it up there. And, and the tie on my list, I haven't been up there yet. I've been to the Gunks once, but, but uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine are all pretty high up there. Yeah, it's a, it's a really a, a special region for sure. Yeah. So you discovered climbing in college and did it start really playing a major role in your life soon after that? Yeah. I, um, I was introduced to climbing as a teenager. My, my uncle was a climber and I re so I was interested in it and I got to climb, you know, like once, like on an outward bound experience, you know, when I was in high school and it was one of those experiences I think a lot of climbers have where like you it's just instant, you know, you're like, Oh, this is what I was meant to do. Um, but I wasn't able to, you know, it's hard to jump into things when you're in the middle of high school. So it was really when I got to college and was sort of forming my new identity as an independent, you know, adult, like I, I remember the, like the first day of college, I checked into my dorm and I figured out how to take the city bus to Lincoln Woods state park in Rhode Island. And that's where the bouldering was. And I started bouldering and then I met people and going to the gym. And yeah, from then on, it was like the full obsession, like many, like many climber stories. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty common, common theme for sure. <laughs> Is there anywhere outside of the Northeast that you're particularly fond of or have traveled to? Oh yeah. I mean, climbing's taken me all around the world and into the just most amazing places. So I, I feel like um, some of the places I've just, when I've been there, I've been like, this is where I feel the most connected. I, I love climbing in, um, the Utah desert. Like I love climbing in the Indian Creek and all of that area around Moab. I love, I, I was able to climb in Patagonia one, uh, I had one trip there when I was in graduate school. And that was another place where I just was, you know, I, I got there and was like, oh yeah, this is. I feel connected to this place and it was an amazing experience and um, California, you know, Yosemite's all kind of many years going to Yosemite. So yeah, the, the circuit, <laughs> right? Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. I live by four or five hours from Indian Creek and that's definitely a very, very special place. The whole Bears Ears region, Moab. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. remarkable. Yeah. Very this, unique stuff. This time of year in New England is when it really gets to me. I just, like, I, I enjoy <laughs> the winters in New England and I enjoy ice climbing, but um, I, I just start to miss uh, springtime in the desert. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, it's coming up here soon. I mean, do you, are you able to get out? Are you able to get out there any, anymore? Or? I, I was, I was there last spring this year. Um, I don't, you know, probably not. Um, actually no last was it or the year before maybe it was, maybe it's been two years now because of the pandemic just threw a wrench in everything. So yeah, mm -hmm. right on. <laughs> it's been a while. Sorry, everyone. I had some technical difficulties on my end while Sarah and I were doing our conversation. My internet went out, so 
please pardon the interruption here. We'll get back to our regularly scheduled programming here in just a few moments. Thank you. So let's pick back up where we left off uh, before our communication got cut. I was beginning to ask you about being a science communicator. Is that your day job? Is that, are you a scientist by trade? Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't, I don't call myself a scientist anymore. Um, I my background is in geology and I did, you know, research like in graduate school, but I left, um, you know, being a practicing scientist to work in this field of science communication. And so now my day job is I'm, uh, the director of science policy and outreach for, um, the Hubbard Brook Research Foundation, which is a, a nonprofit support organization for a long-term ecosystem study that takes place in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. So that work involves um, all kinds of things, but a lot of, you know, setting up um, different engagement opportunities for ecologists who study the White Mountains and the Northern Forest region, and then various decision makers and community members and um, different organizations who care about those, uh, that ecosystem. So it's, it's a really interesting and uh, challenging position, and it's been a great career for me. Awesome. That's really cool. Uh, I think there's kind of a, a stigma or stereotype sometimes about scientists not communicating very well without getting too sciencey, right? Can you can you talk a little bit about the importance of communicating science or the importance of delivering uh, deliberately or, or being relatable? Do you have a particular way you approach communicating the science? Oh, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, you know, what I tend to focus on quite a bit is, is actually more on the relationship side of things. So making sure that scientists and scientific organizations have, um, you know, good working relationships with, uh, land managers and with, uh, policymakers and with community leaders and business leaders. And they have opportunities to listen to, uh, community members and business leaders and, and hear what kind of what issues are, um, people are worried about what issues people care about. And so then with those relationships in place and, and giving scientists and science, science organizations platforms for listening, <laughs> it allows the communication to kind of flow into issues, into community conversations um, without just being this kind of, uh, you know, what would be the, the stereotype with, with the scientists just shouting their research from the rooftops, you know, that's, that's kind of out of context. So less, I mean, obviously we, 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 what we focus on things like um, being relatable and not using too much jargon, but really it's, it's, it's actually similar to this work in, in climbing advocacy where it's, it's about relationships that you establish and making sure there's multiple, you know, two way lines of communication open. Right. Totally. That's, uh, that's awesome. I, I, my, my wife was doing some work with some tiny scientists, uh, recently writing some articles and stuff and, and they were going back and forth trying to like, really, I don't want to say dumb it down, but really just like distill it down. So someone can wrap, wrap their head around all this kind of stuff. And I think it goes beyond just science, but maybe public lands advocacy in general as well. That's just my opinion, but I think it's all kind of relatable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the various issues that we face in our society require making connections across different areas of expertise in different, and, and that can be scientific expertise, that can be lived experience, um, that can be job experience. And so I think being able to, like you said, distill the messages that we want to convey and also really deeply listen to each other, I mean, I just think it's essential. Big time listening to each other. That's that's a very uh, way to good way to wrap it up. I think it's that's that's awesome and makes perfect sense. Um, okay, well let's let's jump into friends of the ledges. That's uh, the main reason why I wanted to have you on today. I wanted to talk a bit about the organization that you've been a part of. You're the board president. Is that right? Yep. How long have you held that position? Um, we let's see. We started friends of the ledges. I think we we incorporated technically in 2016. Um, and so yeah, I was part of the kind of founding group and, and have been leading the organization since that time. Um, so yeah. 
What is that? What does that board position entail? What? What? I guess first, what? What prompted the founding of the group? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, let's see. So the climbing community, you know, there's a long tradition of of climbing in this eastern White Mountains region of of New Hampshire and Western Maine, and um, so there's there have been climbers here for many many decades, and um, and the climbing community is really uh, tight knit and strong and a reason why many of us kind of live here and have, have created our lives here. For the most part, I would say up until recently there, there hasn't really been a need for a, a real organized climbing organization. I mean, there's been, the, there's the mountain rescue service. There's been, um, the American Alpine club has been really quite active. Um, but there there, there wasn't a, like a local climbing organization. And I think the, the climbers really dealt with issues when they arose kind of um, organically or, you know, groups came together to deal with concerns about bolting and concerns about development. So there's a long history of that um, kind of self-governance. Mm-hmm. But I think what has changed in the past, I don't know, five or so years is that um, there's just more there's more climbers and there's more recreators in general. And the, uh, and so I think the issues facing land managers are just increasing. Um, and so I think we, we needed to organize ourselves to have a voice um, at the table, especially with the land managers. And so that's kind of the long winded uh, history. I think no, you know, the, uh, there was an actual moment I was at work um, and I was sitting next to uh, a, a decision maker for the New Hampshire state parks and and I was, I said, oh, you know, I like my whole, the whole reason I live in New Hampshire is because of a state park, because of Cathedral Ledge. And, you know, he made a comment about how we, you know, you wanted to uh, change the system there. We needed to start charging for people. You know, it was just, it was just kind of off the cuff talking about wanting to change um, how things operated at that state park. And really that just lit a fire for me to, that the climbers needed to be getting together and organize and be part of those conversations. So yeah, with him speaking off the cuff, was it kind of like, I don't know, not rubbing you the right way or some red flags being tossed up? Uh, like, wow, some, some things might be changing soon. We got a rally kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And, and that, and that, you know, it, it turns out it wasn't like there was some imminent change, but it, it was a good fire to, to, to get ourselves together and, um, and, and recognize that, you know, we, there's this, I don't know if you've, you of your listeners have been to, to Cathedral Ledge, but it's um, when I think about it, I can I think about it as being, um, you know, it's it's you, you can show up and you can go climbing, and it's, there's not a lot of infrastructure. There's not a lot of um, the the management has been pretty light, and that's been it's been kind of lovely in that respect. And I think mm-hmm. um, that's not always going to be the case, and that's probably just the reality of changing times. Um, so we just want to make sure we're, we're part of that, uh, that evolution. Right. Changing times. <laughs> I, was, I would say it's no longer like the wild west, but maybe it's no longer like the wild east in this case. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, what's what's the kind of day to day look like for the board president for Friends of the Ledges? Um, Friends of the Ledges, you know, we we've. Because we're this is new, you know. I I still think organizing in 2016 is new, <laughs> so yeah, we're still in that those early stages of, of organizational development. Um, we meet our board meets quarterly, and um, and then we have a number of kind of regular annual events like kind of cliff cleanups and things like that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you know, it's organizing uh, the board meetings and making sure that you know volunteers are are kind of off doing the various things they've decided they would volunteer to do. Um, we are super fortunate here because um, we have Mike Morin from the access fund who lives, you know, in our, in our community and he's always really active. And, yep. and um, so having uh, Mike's energy and kind of know, I just know he's on top of a lot of these issues is really great. Yeah. Yeah. Mike's, Mike's awesome. I've gotten to become a you know, buddy of his over, over the years. And like I said earlier, I had him on the show and he got, you know, sprayed me down with all the Northeast work that he's been, been working on and is currently doing. So the management area, I'm curious about that. Friends of the Ledges doesn't have a 
a name with a geographic context to it, such as Salt Lake Climbers Alliance or the Northern Colorado Climbers Coalition? Like, what is your geographic scope of work? We've talked about Cathedral Ledge, which is, you know, pretty well known, but what else is included in that uh, scope of work or scope of management for you? Yeah, we, we define our service area as um, the, the climbing areas of the eastern White Mountains of New Hampshire and, and Maine. And so mm-hmm. um, kind of the easiest, we, we send people to um, Jerry Handron's guidebook, uh, North Conway Rock Climbs, as, as really the kind of service area. And that, that way it sort of distinguishes from um, some of the work of the other local climbing organizations, so we all kind of divvy up our areas. But basically... Um, from, uh, you know, this sort of side, the eastern side of the White Mountains over to um, Evans Notch, but the Bethel area of western Maine, kind of all those, there's lots of little uh, backwoods crags in the, in this area. <laughs> Where I don't, I don't, I'm not up to snuff on my uh, New Hampshire geography, but where's Rumney in comparison to all this? Yeah, so Rumney's on the other side of the kind of crest of the White Mountains, so um, that would be a different, uh, a different service area. Like the Rumney Climbers Association, <laughs> RCA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, think, I think that's right. Okay. Okay. So that's like what that'd be on the western side of the mountains. Correct. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Cool. Okay. Yeah, for a long time, you know, we now that people talk about the Mount Washington Valley as, um, but for you know, kind of before that was a term, a phrase that was coined. This area was called the Eastern Slope, so it's kind of the Eastern Slope or the White Mountains. Yep, that makes sense. Okay, so friends, it's it's called Friends of the Ledges, so it's like a, a friends group. Um, I've kind of always wondered if there's a technical, like structural difference organizationally between what a friends group is and like a local climbing organization. There's other friends groups, climbing friends groups, like friends of Indian Creek. I've just, I'm more familiar maybe with the LCO side. Is there a technical difference, but what makes a friends group? Yeah. I don't know if there's a technical difference, but I think there's an, a difference in kind of orientation, at least in my mind. So, mm-hmm. um, for the, you know, New Hampshire's the live for your die state. So there's a, there's a <laughs> real like, license plate. Yeah. <laughs> there's a real, um, you know, libertarian streak here. People sure. are, you know, not tending to want to be organized. And so <laughs> I think the idea is to, um, you know, we're not an organization that speaks for all climbers, and and that's not what we're trying to be. Um, uh-huh. But what we are trying to be is to be a, a group that pulls together. Um, and pulls in the same direction of of being a friend to the ledges and being an advocate for um, the the history of climbing in the region. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if this is a technical difference. Uh, there's no executive like order or hierarchy. There's no like executive director and then development director, outreach, whatever. It's just more of like a just a board. Yeah, we certainly don't have a staff. Um, and I don't know that, you know, it would ever get to that stage. I think it's certainly, you know, the, the organization so far has been a board and, and now we are um, becoming an affiliate, uh, you know, an official affiliate of the Access Fund. And we're setting up a, um, a more formal way to become a member, um, which mm-hmm. I'm excited about. Cool. Right on. Awesome. Well, you got a lot of things on your plate having to manage like year round climbing and particularly like at, at the ledges, uh, this is this winter climbing is not something that we've really covered much on the show. And I'm kind of finding this trend across climbing podcasts. I feel like the, the big ones out there just don't cover ice in winter, uh, climbing all that much, unfortunately. So I'm sorry. Yeah. It hasn't been like totally inclusive here, but, um, I want to make it inclusive today, so let's get into that. Since you are climbing, uh, man- excuse me, managing climbing year-round, that must come with some communicating different ethics or guidelines based on the season. And as it states on the Friends' website at places like Cathedral Ledge, there's often an overlap between summer rock routes and winter mixed routes. Can you talk about that a little bit and how things might change season to season? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting issue we face here that I don't know many other climbing areas in the world tend to face. I mean, I mean, in a lot of the premier winter climbing areas, the, the terrain, like the actual rock or, or, or the mountain doesn't overlap with classic rock climbs. Um, but, it, but that is the case here. 
as winter climbing, you know, becomes like all climbing becomes more um, popular and there's just more people practicing it. Uh, there's a, there's issues we're worried about, you know, there's crampons and, and ice tools uh, can scratch the rock can chip the rock can leave permanent damage. And so um, I think when winter climbing, you know, in mixed climbing and was a little more niche, you wouldn't see a lot of that impact, but I think, but that's starting to change. And so we're right. as a community, um, you know, trying to grapple with that and, and figure out um, are there, are there, climbs that have been winter climbs and summer climbs that should only be summer climbs are people is that is that where our community is going to go if there's too much damage um you know one of the issues is that if there's enough ice you can usually kind of you can climb a lot of these routes without hurting the rock um so it's a real judgment call like is there enough ice or not and as climate changes um the conditions change. So an ascent, you know, a winter route might've been put up in some conditions. And then those changes, we, we're seeing really different kinds of conditions season to season. Right. So it's, it's like anything in climbing, like there's a, it's just a massive gray area with a lot of interpretation. Um, so we're, that's what we're kind of grappling with here. Yeah, that's that's really unique. I have not had any guest on that we've touched anywhere near something like this. So I'm really this is really fascinating. I know dry tooling on rock roots has been discussed at length online and I was pretty scared to go down the deep dark hole of what are the mountain project forums. But can we talk a little bit about maybe some of the specific ethics uh that you all I'm not sure if this is all something you developed. Um that you have them all like listed on your site and everything, the ethics around winter climbing at places like cathedral. Yeah. So we, um, we released earlier this year, just this, this really initial tread lightly campaign. So a very um, high level kind of broad kind of introduction to the issues. So some climbers I'm sure are complaining that the, the statements are way too broad and, um, it can be interpreted lots of different ways and other climbers probably appreciate that they're broad. We, we really just put this out as a kind of a starting point, um, with input, you know, after talking with lots of climbers from who are really, you know, diehard, uh, mixed climbers all winter and, and to like the diehard rock climbers who don't, who don't winter climb. So, um, so we put this statement out really to generate some conversation and to generate some discussion, um, and then to seed a community forum that we're hosting next week already. Um, and, and then from that conversation, we hope to, um, again, just to really kind of illuminate uh, different perspectives on the, the, the issue. I think, I think most climbers, you know, want to do the right thing. And most climbers want to do um, what's best for the, the, the terrain and, and no one wants to cause damage. And so I think really just providing a forum for people to talk about, you know, how they make decisions about what's acceptable to the climb and not, I mean, that's really what the friends of the ledges is hoping to do is, is provide that platform for people to, to share their perspectives and, and share their approaches. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I think everyone you know wants the best thing for the resource, just the avenue that some folks might take or perceptions that they might have to get to that end point is, is where like the conflict happens. Right. And with those varying perspectives and opinions, um, having to get ironed out, having an event like this could, could, uh, help that immensely the tread lightly winter climbing in the winter climbing in the white mountains event like you said you're going to host next week are there like specific tangibles like are there going to be like decisive management actions that might come out of this or is this more just an open forum to to discuss yeah i I know i think that would be ambitious you know in a in a first attempt at this kind of online forum i I, Mm -hmm. what we will produce it'll be a report from the meeting so for folks who couldn't be there um to summarize some of the key points that were made and and perspectives that were that were brought up so you know that's something that we can we can say that we'll produce out of the event um and then see where the where the dialogue takes us so um you know i know there are some climbers who want 
a list, right? They want the like rules spelled out, like what can we climb? What can't we climb and what conditions and when? And, um, and, and then other climbers are like, no, you know, back in the lid for your die point, like no one can tell me what to do. And so we have to navigate that. And, and, you know, as a, as a friends group, I, my perspective is, um, is the best that we can do as an organization is to, um, open the opportunities for those perspectives to be shared and to synthesize them. And, um, if there is some sense of consensus around more specific actions, then absolutely, you know, I think we could, we could take action on that. Um, but we'll, we'll see, <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> I know we're kind of staying focused on cathedral a little bit and that's, that's okay. Um, it's in a state park. It's not on forest land. Yeah, so um, Cathedral Ledge is, is a state park, um, and the and the winter climbing issues are not just you know we talk a lot about Cathedral because it's such a classic, it's, right. it's such an amazing area for both winter climbing and um, summer climbing. So I in all seasons. So I think we talk about that a lot. But the issues you know they extend up into Mount Washington and um, you know Huntington Ravine. There's there's rock routes that are either there's or mixed climbs people are climbing in kind of variable condition there's um rock climbs at at frankenstein where i mean not at frankenstein at uh rock climbs at um what's the cliff i'm thinking of trollville that's what i'm gonna say trollville is like a classic uh winter and mixed climbing area but there's there are rock climbs at trollville too so i think there's this this issue of like is it a is it a rock climb is it a mixed climb is it is it both and how do you how do you deal with that? God, that sounds really hard. I mean, depending on people's just discretion when they get to the to the crag, is like you're putting a lot of putting you know a lot of trust in in folks to make the right call when they get there. Like, uh, should we do it? Should we not? Have you seen that recent Rock and Ice article about style matters? Um, the one about the ascent of um, cryokinesis. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that was great. That was really good. That was fascinating. And I don't think it could have come out at a more perfect time, you know, having our conversation today. And it was, so it's all about this recent ascent of a route called uh, cryokinesis and the style that it was done in. I mean, this is so crazy to me. The route goes from like rock climbing to ice climbing to dry tooling. I mean, how tall is the thing? What, like a hundred feet or something, maybe? Yeah, that one pitch, but it's a. I think it's. I think the team climbed a full, uh, a full route. So I think they climbed, a, a, and I, it has been, been a while since I read it. But I think they climbed Karen's variation up to this ledge, where then they climbed that one. Right, pitch. right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's just like all uh, three different styles of climbing packed into into one route, <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, it said, it said in the article that this ascent may have set a precedent for similar climbs in the area. Like, would you agree with that? I, I don't know. I, I guess it remains to be seen, but I, <laughs> I appreciate that those guys, you know, wrote about it and are sharing it. We, and Zach, the guy who wrote the article, is going to be on that panel for the um, event next week. So I think the more that we talk about um, the, the choices we make in the wintertime and why um, – I think that'll help this, you know, just, I, I, sometimes I think people don't realize, I mean, granite, you know, it is, uh, it's just, it's a strong rock. Like you don't necessarily think you're going to cause damage to granite when you go out there and climb it with your crampons, but over time it happens. Right. And then the, the guy, uh, John, I think his name was, you started off in his rock shoes, got up to like this really amazing looking like pillar of ice that went down, uh, part of the route. And like built an anchor and switched into his crampons and, and climbed the ice and then dry tooled out from there. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, it's wild. And what a, just a very unique, uh, I don't want to say management issue, but a management item that you all have to face. It's uh, very intriguing. And I would love to hear someone else's thoughts on this. Um, it's, it's really neat stuff. I mean, is there anything else you could say about this ascent? Oh, what they did. I, yeah, I, I, I just think it's, you know, it's beyond what I, what I can climb in the wintertime. It's so I'm inspired by, um, how, how hard they're trying and, and that they're, um, really thinking about the, the precedent that they're setting. I, th I think that's, that's awesome. 
Right, right. Yeah, I think the the route they they listed out like the difficulty of the route in the article, and I, I went something like five ten plus uh, M seven water ice five plus A zero something else. <laughs> it was like some insane grade. Uh, it's it's pretty funny. I'll make sure to share that link with everyone so people can check it out. All right. Uh, well, moving on a little bit from winter climbing, I want to talk a little bit more about land management and access to to your like main areas around there. And it's it seems like Friends of the Ledges has had a couple big conversation or big conser- conservation wins in the last three or four years or so. One at Cathedral and one at Whitehorse Ledge. And then another one at Band M Ledge, which we can talk about second. Um, is it also is it, is that like an east coast thing do i call them saying like ledge over cliff is that just some kind of regional kind of thing <laughs> i i think that's i mean i've only encountered it here and it's yeah. I, I find it really this kind of endearing local thing but i don't know if, it, if it's elsewhere. <laughs> okay right on well i guess i'll leave it up to you is there more is there a more appropriate one to start with uh either the band m ledge win or the recent more recent one at cathedral yeah we can talk about about both, but the the Cathedral Whitehorse, um, the land acquisition, is that what you're talking about? Yes, correct. Yeah, so there's, um, and that's another, I would say when we when we founded the, if that's the right way to say it, um, Friends of the Legends, we, that was another issue that was really important to us. So there are th- three parcels of um, private land that that split the state park. So the um, there's Echo Lake, which is a lake right at the base of, of Whitehorse Ledge, and then there's some you know intact forest land that goes over to Cathedral Ledge, and then surrounding all of that is is White Mountain National Forest, this federal land, um, but kind of nestled in that forest land in between Cathedral and Whitehorse are uh, three parcels of, of private land, and um, and so we were able to um, permanently conserve one of those parcels you know, in a in a really fabulous partnership with um, the Access Fund and the Upper Saco Valley Land Trust, our local land trust here. Yep. Um, and so the other two parcels, you know, we've been in touch with those landowners and that's that's definitely like our, our long game is that, you know, hopefully in the future, those landowners will be um, interested in in, you know, permanent conservation of those parcels. Mm-hmm. So the one uh, that we, yeah, this uh, this parcel that you worked that you worked to protect uh, between Friends Access Fund and Upper Saco, is that how you say it? The, yeah, the Upper Saco Valley Land Trust. Got it. Um, like, could you could you provide some more color on how these entities work together with this landowner? I mean, from reading the articles, this landowner is a very generous, conservation-minded landowner, and he donated this parcel to that land trust like what was the dynamic like or what was the inner workings between these three organizations to make this happen yeah absolutely the the landowner is a climber and has been you know part of the climbing community um and and i think bought that land with conservation in mind and so i you know as he said when we approached him he's been waiting however many decades for for this to happen and for this to, to kind of come to fruition and so that was really a, a nice just overall interaction and and thing that we were able to accomplish the um at the time so the now i can't remember i think the upper Saco valley land trust so the way land um conservation easements work you know sometimes you have the the actual land owner and then a different organization will hold the easement and kind of checks and balances and so now it's been a while i can't actually remember who is maybe the Upper Saco Valley Land Trust? Um, I think that's right. They um, they received the the donation of the land, and then the access fund holds the permanent easement. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's what I read in the article. I believe. Yeah. And then the Friends of the Ledges, um, you know, played a role in kind of brokering, and then we, you know, helped do this the stewardship. So walking the lands and making sure that um, it is it follows the the terms of the easement. Yep, exactly, exactly. So since the, the the land was donated, the easement's a separate thing. Do you know, was that, was that a donated easement as well? Or did, did you have to do any fundraising to purchase that easement? We did some fundraising for, um, yes, yeah, some of the, the, 
the fees that go into setting up an easement and and then there's a legal there's a legal fees for maintaining that so yeah we and and now i on the spot i don't remember how much um that fundraising campaign was but we worked really closely with the access fund and it went it went really well Awesome. And actually, the, the great thing about it, because those three parcels are connected, um, that I believe that, that a lot of that fundraising is in place and it won't have to be duplicated if those other parcels become available. Um, oh, wow. The, so that the, some of the legal fees and the, um, the, the stewardship costs can just be rolled into those other parcels without having to do that again. Right on. Well, that's very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> what are those? Uh, who owns those? Who owns those parcels? Is that going to be uh, an easy thing to work with? Is what seems to be as simple as you know this one was. Um, well, we've reached out to them. I mean, in both of uh, both of those landowners have expressed that they're not interested at this time in, in selling their land, um, but they know that that we are interested. So hopefully. Um, like I said, like hopefully in the long run, like we'll, if those landowners um, decide they're ready to sell, that um, we would be, we would be able to get the call. Yeah, for sure. And maybe that won't be a donated parcel, probably more, more of a purchase. We'll I, I, yeah, it's hard to know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, time will tell. All right. Well, I mean, it goes such a long way when you're working with a conservation-minded landowner like this, uh, this gentleman who owned, was it the, uh, the Echo Lake parcels at is that the right one? Yeah, Jim and Sarah. He's a really, a really an amazing human. Yeah, awesome. Right on. Well, let's uh, let's how about this next one, the Band M Ledge, and this is the, yeah, this is the second one I wanted to talk about um, conserving this ledge, which happened prior to the one we just talked about, a cathedral and Whitehorse. Um, how far apart are these two areas, Band M from uh, Cathedral? Um, Band M. That's about twenty minutes or so to the south. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that's a real different situation. So it's a smaller uh, kind of crag it's, um, and it's on private land. And so that became the issue is just making sure we could keep access. Right, right. It seemed to be more of a sticky situation because access was closed due to the climbing being close proximity to a quarry. Yeah, exactly. And I think there was some um, concerns about liability that, that the, landowners had, um, but we were able to um, work with them and, and walk through the different, um, options. And, and again, you know, having Mike Morin and the, the expertise of the access fund to, to, um, bring all of that to those conversations was super helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how did you, so it was closed in 2011. Um, what were those conversations like with, uh, with that, uh, Corey, company i guess uh what was those those conversations like to get that reopened do you know how the, the inner workings of how that happened you know i i was i was never you know in any of those specific conversations personally but it was a, one of those kind of wonderful small town dealings like you know you knew so and so who knew so and so who knew was friends with the landowner and so you just sort of made these personal connections um that then opened the door and and made it uh, you know i think really it, it wasn't it wasn't as as difficult as we might have been concerned about um, so so yeah just really like managing those relationships in a small town is is just really key yeah absolutely no I live in a rural small town as well and do conservation work here so I completely understand yeah just having those strong uh, trusting connections is goes a long way so what uh, what came out of that was a three-year management agreement what was in, do you know what was included in that agreement uh, arrangement yeah basically just um, allowing access to the cliff um, the base of the cliff the top of the cliff the cliff itself um, and allowing, you know, climbing and hiking, you know, on those in, in that area. Um, and then the climbers agreed to, you know, do steward, you know, trailhead, stu- trail stewardship, kind of any kind of tra- trash cleanup that might need to happen. Um, and to let climbers know, you know, where, where they can go and how they can access the cliff. And then, and then staying away from the quarry, basically. Um, and then the other piece was kind of additional insurance. And so that was, again, how the access fund really helped out was having 
um, at that time, Friends of the Ledges didn't have a general liability insurance policy. Um, so we were able to work with Access Fund to do that. And then um, now that the Friends of the Ledges has that policy, we're, we're working on kind of renewing that agreement under the Friends of the Ledges. That was my next question was where I knew it was a you know, three-year agreement. And that was, I think, set, what was that, set to expire in last year or something, something really recently. I was wondering if you were able to renew that under the organization. Yeah, we, ex- you know, I don't know if I have to check if, it, if all the paperwork is signed, but we expect to. Um, it's been one of those, you know, COVID who's who's doing what. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, who's on uh, first? Yeah, yep. We expect it to happen. Yeah, awesome. Right on. Well, uh, anything else that Friends of the Leches has going on? Any other challenges that uh, that's on your plate that you have to manage? Um, I don't know if it's a challenge, but just something that we're really focused on is is on re- bolt replacement and, you know, really taking the time. And um, we have just a Sam Bendroth is, is on our board and he's one of our most active volunteers. And, and he ha- has just been a machine out there year after year <laughs> replacing um, bolts, you know, one to one using kind of all the, the best tools and, and tricks. And so I. I think that is an ongoing, um, it's ongoing work. It takes a lot of time, um, but we we really appreciate having someone, you know, who knows how to do it really well. And um, so, yeah, that's that's a big effort that that we are involved in. Is he, yeah, he, just a one man show, just heading out there and just getting all that done like a machine, like you said. <laughs> we have a few a few others, but yeah. Sam's definitely the ringleader. Um, we have a few others who, he, he did do a, a small, you know, training with some volunteers. Um, but, you know, I, I think, I think one-to-one bolt replacement, um, I, my sense, I, I don't do it, but I, my sense is that it, it, it's helpful to have someone who's, uh, who's got a lot of experience um, kind of doing that. And so we, we try to um, get Sam out there as much as possible. We'd like to be able to pay, um, you know, bolt replacers instead of rely on just kind of when someone has extra free time. Um, and I know some other local company organizations have been exploring that. Um, so that's something that we're looking into, whether or not that could happen and, and under insurance and all those sorts of things. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Salt Lake, that's got a robust, I think, paid staff rebolting program, uh, maybe bouldering boulder climbing community also has some paid i could be wrong on that but yeah i definitely think there's some good resources you could get uh, people get you can get a hold of to learn some more about it um you mentioned one-on-one bolts replacement i'm not sure if i'm familiar with that phrase or that oh, terminology one is yeah just like it, a bolt comes out and it goes back in the same same this hole is, and using the same hole okay yeah, okay yeah. so you're not like changing it up which, you know, yes. that gets, opens all kinds of cans of worms. Oh, totally. Yeah. I know that can be challenging trying sometimes depending on different factors. You know, I haven't done too much bolt replacement or anchor building, you know, anchor uh, replacement, but I know there could be some nuancey things of trying to, I think like a lot of folks try to reuse the same hole if they can, but sometimes it's not always possible. So I commend him from, for trying to, yeah, do the one-to-one thing. Exactly. And so then there's that judgment call of like, how do you, how do you manage the the situation where you can't reach the same hole and you got to move things around a little bit. And, and that, you know, having um, people who know the history of the the climbs and um, is just super important to have, to be able to make those judgment calls. We, the, before there was the friends of the ledges, the, the local kind of, climbing community came together over a period of many months, um, you know, thinking about if, how, if people were adding bolts or adding anchors and, you know, there's all kinds of drama around those sorts of issues. And so just trying, the community came together to, to, to hash it all out and try to decide kind of what the ethic is here. Mm -hmm. And after many, many months of, of small group discussion and large group discussions, they came up with a statement that um, that the ethic here is to preserve the character and the integrity of the first descent, and so that's really kind of what we we try to uphold that that ethic as much as possible. Amazing, 
Yeah, there's, there's uh, so much richness to that and so much value uh, just historically. I think uh, you're doing, doing the right thing there. Final question, what is your definition of advocacy? That's a good question. My, you know, when I, a lot of the work we do with Friends of the Ledges is kind of quiet behind the scenes, talking with the land managers, talking with the landowners, and um, making sure that any concerns they have are addressed. And, and, and then honestly, like my, my goal is always for the land managers to think of the climbers as the user group that cares the most, that cares the most about the cliffs, that cares the most about the resource. And so to me, that's what advocacy is, is, um, is being there and having those relationships with those land, landowners, land managers, and letting them know that, um, yeah, climbers care the most. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I, I really hope you all enjoy this show as much as I enjoy making it. It's a lot of fun putting this together each month for you all to tune in and listen to. So thanks so much for listening. Before you depart, I want to run a few things by you. I started the show to bolster the efforts that these advocates do year after year, and of course, to support the mission of Access Fund. So I'd like to ask you to either donate or better yet, become a member of Access Fund. Your support and membership goes a long way to help them with their mission of conserving, stewarding, and advocating for climbing. There are varying levels that you can that you can become a member at, but you can get started for as low as 20 bucks a year, and after that, you can reap all kinds of awesome benefits with first getting a free t-shirt and getting amazing discounts on some of the best climbing products out there. It's all listed on Access Fund's website, accessfund.org, so check it out. If you're a rock climber, please consider becoming a member of Access Fund. Second, if you want to do me a huge solid, please subscribe to the show and leave a glowing review and comment on Apple Podcasts. After that, jump on those social media channels and share it with your friends. It goes a long, long way, and I'd greatly appreciate if you help me out with that one. So thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it, and I'll catch you all next time.